Before I read the passage of Scripture, uh, I want to give you something that the Lord gave me. It's, it's uncanny that as I'm going through a text and preparing for the week, the Lord always gives me a, an illustration. Um, last night I was studying here, and um, as I was coming out, uh, a friend of mine was dropping off some pamphlets for an event, and I saw him. He said, let's go get some coffee or a bite to eat. And we went out, we sat down, and he shared a story with me as we were seated that deeply touched me. And it was, he was commenting, he's a, a, an airline pilot for a major airline. And he said, you know, in the course of, and he's had an extensive career, he's got countless hours uh, in, in a cockpit. And he said, as a captain of, of an airliner, only on two occasions has he ever had to take the controls away from the co-pilot um, because part of it is training. You want to equip the co-pilot to be able to take off and land. And so they were coming in in this last uh, time, and he shared with me how it, it shook him up a little bit. And he said, this is the second occasion. He said, it, it's, it's not pleasant. He said, and I saw the warning sign because the more time you spend in the cockpit training folks, you start to see these things. But you want to give someone the ability to uh, be tested and be strengthened so that they're equipped to, to land a plane in all kinds of weather. And they're coming into Boston, heavy snowstorms, snow flurries, crosswinds, the, the worst things you can imagine. And he said, do you want me to take it? And he says, no, I'm up for the challenge. And my friend commented that that right away sent a concern to me because that response is usually a prideful response. So uh, he let him have the controls and was very, very prepared to take over at a moment's notice. And as they were making their approach, he saw some signs that concerned him. And as they were coming in, he checked the airspeed and the, all the stuff. I don't even know where to begin to describe what he explained. <laughs> but he takes the controls away from him and lands a plane. And the only thing that the passengers experienced was a little bit of just a bumpiness on approach. But what they didn't realize is that he continued, there would have been great concern. And he took the controls over and landed the plane. He was shook up, my friend, and, and he's walking through um, the airport along with the co-pilot who said, you know, I just didn't have a good day today. And that even bothered him more because here's a man whose pride just could not surrender to realize that he was incapable of, of landing a plane and something like that and wasn't paying attention, but was more concerned about his ego than he was with the safety of the passengers. And and I, I don't know that that'd be true, but, but that ego was there. And, and my friend pointed out, he just said, this is my responsibility as a captain to make sure that the passengers are safe. I also have to train someone to take over for me in my absence. And, and this is what you look for. And the reason why this illustration so touched me in preparation, and it was a perfect cap to my time in the Word, was that we're going to see in the life of the Lord uh, on this earth how they're going to go into the midst of a storm and these are fishermen. And Mark, who gives Peter's account, and Peter's a fisherman, Mark gives the account that, that the fishermen, these guys, ushered Jesus into the boat. Matthew's account says that Jesus called them into the boat. It was probably both cases. Jesus was probably summoned in by the fishermen who were on the boat, and then Jesus summoned the other disciples to come and join them. But the ones that summoned Jesus into the boat were basically saying, look, you're, you're good at healing the lepers and casting out demons, and you healed the centurion servant, and you've healed everybody in Capernaum and Peter, Peter's mother-in-law, and, and you're, you're amazing. But we're fishermen. We know what we're doing. Come on, if we want to get to the other side, we'll take it from here. And that's a problem. Uh, God's not 
the co-pilot. God's the pilot. And it's our pride that doesn't allow him to take over, especially when we're coming in. And it's just not you that's going to be affected. It's all the people that count on you and the passengers in life. And we need to realize in the midst of these storms that we have to trust the Lord and give him the controls. And, um, and there's a lot that we're going to glean from this. In addition, we're going to see two, two disciples, and they're coin disciples. That's the title they're given, that don't get in the boat with the Lord. And they kind of represent, in a lot of ways, many in the body of Christ. And so this is going to be a fun study for all of us, and I pray that it touches you deeply. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to pick up at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came to him and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples, meaning that insinuating that the other guy was a disciple as well. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Kind of harsh. Verse 23, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. Mark's account, which is Peter's account, says that the boat began to fill. That's how a sailor would see it. We're sinking. Uh, The waves are on us. No, we're sinking. Just thought I'd add that. But Jesus, in the midst of it, was asleep, the scripture says. Verse 25, then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're perishing. We're dying. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Interesting that he rebuked the disciples before he rebuked the wind. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Just remain standing, and I'm going to read this to you. And this is a very famous psalm that is often quoted in the eastern seaboard and around fishing communities. Psalm 107. Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens and they go down again to the depths and their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses and he calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet and so he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. David wrote in Psalm 42, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And then finally, Psalm 89, verses eight and nine. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you? O Lord, your faithfulness surrounds you. 
You rule the raging of the sea. When waves rise, you still them. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. I pray, Lord, comfort upon your people. And Lord, just the storms of life, everybody has them. We're either going into one, we're in the midst of one, or coming out of one. And Lord, I pray that you, through your word that is alive, would cause us to come alive to faith. Faith to realize that in the midst of the storm, you're in complete control, and if you rest, so shall we. I pray your comfort upon your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. Interesting passage of scripture. Uh, I, we're going to be on the Sea of Galilee, and we actually leave uh, near Magdala on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is shaped like a harp, and that's why they call it Knesseret, which means uh, harp. And it's about 13 miles long, about seven miles wide. The, at the depths, it's probably about 250 feet deep. And um, you leave on the northern end, go to the southern end, which is Tiberias. And as you cross over... Um, the Sea of Galilee, it's beautiful and, and it's, it's undeveloped. So it, it, it looks just like it looked more than likely when, when Christ was there. Very little development in that area. And it's one of the most peaceful places I've ever been. I remember one time in particular going with uh, Senator Rand Paul and we were all on board this ship and, and it's not one of these fishing vessels that uh, holds about 20 people with a sail and kind of rickety held together by dowels and, and the like. This thing was a solid boat. And, and uh, I've seen pictures of waves of 20 feet high on the Sea of Galilee because the Sea of Galilee is about 670 feet below sea level in a very arid and, and Mediterranean-tempered climate. And, and being below sea level, you have near Magdala all these mountains around the edges of it, and you have the Golan Heights as well. And so when the winds and the storm come off of the, the Mediterranean, they come in towards Israel what happens is it hits this mountain range and then immediately drops and it, and it descends as, as Mark pointed out that the storm descended, it fell upon them. And that's exactly what a storm does. And it, and it just happens because you have two different climates. You have cold wind coming in with a warm temperate climate. It hits and just drops right onto the sea of Galilee and immediately rages in a storm. And, and I remember being out there and here we, we, we called it the uh, plague tour because uh, Senator Rand Paul, everywhere he went, there was you know, flooding and, and it, was, it was a big rain that year. And here we are on the Sea of Galilee and we left and as we're leaving the port, we're, we're, it, it starts to get really stormy and hail is coming down, landing on the boat. And we're all underneath the canopy and it's raining and the boat's you know, hitting a little bit and you're thinking, this is crazy. I mean, this, and, and I've heard the joke a thousand times, Pastor, are you going to walk on water? Don't do it this trip. Just don't even, I've heard it. It's not even funny. And, um, and they're all making the little comments. We're all giggling, you know, just a nervous laughter because it's a little choppy out there. And we're at the halfway point, which is, you know, point of no return. It's the same distance back as it is forward. And you're thinking, I hope this vessel holds. And we get to the middle in the midst of the storm. And it wasn't, you know, 20 foot waves, but it was enough to cause a little bit of concern. We get to the middle and all of a sudden it, it was, it was biblical. Just, it just calmed and a rainbow came out. The sun came out, just calmed. And all the way from the middle, all the way to Tiberias, it was like, ha, 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 It was stunning. And I took it all in. And, and every trip I've ever made to Israel, something like that happens. And that was one of those moments where you just realize God is in control. Reflecting on Psalm 107, Psalm 89, looking at the different writings, and especially David in Psalm 47, just magnificent, this visual that God gives you. 
And I, I remember seeing that. And I've been in the midst of a few storms, and it, it reminds me of Lieutenant Dan and uh, uh, Forrest Gump when he's, you know, up on top of the mast and he's yelling at God, you call this a storm? And um, I'm thinking to myself, there's, there's two ways to go through life. One is to curse God and say, give me more, and <laughs> he will. Uh, and I just don't think that's wise. That's all I'm going to say about that. And there's others to realize that you're in the midst of the storm, and this is way beyond your ability. And, and you need to give the controls over because there are a lot of people counting on you. You need to turn those controls over, not panic. In the midst of storms, it's fascinating that all of us come to a place where we panic. And, and then we get overwhelmed. And as I've often said, that we're, we're supposed to be thermostats, not thermometers. We don't read the temperature of the room. We set it. And based, based on that idea of being a thermostat, when you're in the midst of a storm, you have the ability to have everyone as miserable as you are. You just set that temperature. And it's your worry and your fear and your being overwhelmed and, and, and just being enveloped by the storm itself. And you can't see the destination because you're just so enveloped by the storm. You don't know the purpose or the point. You don't know where you're going. You've given up and you're just letting everyone else know how panicked you are. And I wonder how long it took the disciples because here you had the, the four disciples probably you know, summoning Jesus into the boat. Look, you're a healer, you're a teacher, you're, you're, you're a rabbi, you're a good guy. Come on in, we're gonna show you. We've got this. This is our profession. Uh, I, I'm, I'm up for the challenge. And they get in, you know, they get, they're in the boat and Jesus gets in. Then Jesus summons the other disciples. They get in the boat with him. So we see the, the two aspects of, of the gospels. And then Jesus goes to sleep. And the reason why he fell asleep is because as we go through the gospel of Mark, it says that he healed everyone in Capernaum. He cast out demons. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, he fed, yeah, this, this guy's been busy. And a full day of healing and casting out demons and, you know, just being around somebody who's demon-possessed is a little stressful. That's just my <laughs> thought on that. And, you know, in ministry, it's surrounded by the needs. You take those upon yourself and it's, it's burdensome and, and you have to learn to give those to the Lord and direct them to the Lord. And they always want you to be that person for them. They want you to be the healer. And, and in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. I don't have that ability. God came to meet your needs and the riches of Christ, not Rob. Rob doesn't have that ability. And, and then you have to face their disappointment with you because they wanted somebody other than the Lord to fix that. And then you have to go through all those kind of things that you've disappointed them or let them down. And, and you carry that. And it's exhausting, quite frankly. It is. It's exhausting. And you have to learn how to process it. And that's why the attrition rate in ministry is over 70%. And, and you have to learn how to process it. They don't teach you that in seminary. It's just one of those things you learn. And if you don't, you, you, you sink and drown. And it happens to a lot. And, and here's Jesus, an entire day of ministry and, and no sleep whatsoever. And the scripture says that long into the evening, uh, people were at the house and he was surrounded and giving himself away and pouring into others. And, and then the scripture says the very next chapter that he awoke long before the sun arose and went to a solitary place and there communed with the father. He, he got up before the sun rose up to pray. And then he enters into this. So he's exhausted. I mean, the Bible says that he is fully man, fully God, tempted in all ways, yet without sin. He suffered like we suffered. So he knows exhaustion. And he's at a place where he is wiped out. He gets into a boat and it's rocking. Just da, 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 da. And, you know, it's like a kid in a car in the car seat. You know, out. And that's what you drive kids around to put them to sleep, right? Yeah. Jesus is, is sound asleep. And Mark points out that he has his head on a pillow. A pillow. And he's asleep. And then in 
How long did it take for the disciples? Real? No, we got this, right? We're fishermen. We got this. I mean, this is, this is a big one. Oh, boy, it's coming in. Uh, trim that, pull that, uh, tighten up, batten down the, and then, oh, God, we're in trouble. God, oh, God, oh, God. He's like, what? And, and he finally, they just panic, and, and they waited until the last minute when the water's coming in, the boat's sinking. Then they wake him up and go, we're dying. Do something. <laughs> you know it's a bad storm when the sailors are asking a carpenter to help. It's just not good. But before all that occurred, before the misery of that storm that, that, that Jesus took them into, he said, let's go to the other side. He commanded, the scripture says he commanded to go to the other side. Jesus said it, I believe it, that settles it. He commanded it. God said it, I believe it. That, he, Jesus said, we're going to the other side. And as he commanded it, they got in the boat with him. But prior to getting into the boat, we have these two disciples. These two disciples. You know who else was a disciple of Jesus? was Judas. There's a number of people, and the word disciple means a follower learning from the teachings of Christ, and, and we can do that. And there are a number of people in the course of, of the time I've been in ministry that have been disciples that have followed the Lord for a season, and then they just fall off the edge, and they, they, they're just nowhere to be found. And they're shipwrecked in their faith. Well, these two are disciples. They've been following him. They witnessed the healing of the, of the leper. They saw the centurion being healed. They saw Jesus heal everyone in Capernaum. They saw miracle after miracle, and, and the crowds are pressing in. And it is amazing what's happening as the Lord, the scripture points out that when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he couldn't get away from the multitudes. They were pressing in. He was a popular guy. And so he's, he's going to go, you know, the, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. He's just going to go across the lake. And this multitude goes, and by the time he gets across, they're all there going, hey, we need another healing. We need some food. And you, maybe you can, he's like, oh. And he's going to get some rest on the ship on the way over. And, and before he gets in, one of these scribes and a disciple, the scripture points out, and he's, he's, he's a disciple, he's a follower. He's been witnessing all this. He's been learning on the Sermon on the Mount. He was up there. He heard about blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of God. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. He's got all that in. He's learned about salt and light and all these things and he, the teachings and he's just so excited about it. And he comes up and he says to the Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Now Jesus doesn't say, you have, you, you're, you're the biggest loser on the planet. You're a three-dimensional loser. I don't have anything. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I know the heart of man and it's deceitful above all else. And what you're saying is a waste of time and you and I both know it. And he doesn't say that. He looks at the man. And the man is interesting. When he says, I will follow you wherever you go, it's similar to the lights being low, the candles up, uh, music is playing, a really profound sermon that's touched you deeply, and, and, the, and, the, and the minister is giving you the altar call, and they're playing, you know, come, come as you are, and, and, and you're just so moved, and, and you, you go forward, and you kneel at the altar, and you pray the sinner's prayer, and you receive Christ. It's like um, going to a, a men's retreat or a women's retreat, and, and you're up there, and you're so touched by the teaching, and you just, I, Lord, Lord, I am ready to take this to the corners of the earth. I am yours. I am all in. And you get down the mountain just filled with joy and, and sincerity. And you get home, back to the house, and the kids are vomiting, and the dogs pooped on the carpet, and it's just bad. And you go from faith to misery like that. And you, Lord who? And, and this is that picture, and this is the guy. He's got sincerity. And here's, here's the problem. One disciple is too anxious to jump on board, and the other is too hesitant. And Jesus looks at the first one and says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you will go. 
And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Hey, listen, the minute you don't have a pillow, pal, you're going to quit. And it's interesting that Jesus is on the boat and there is a pillow. He's got the only pillow. And he says, this is mine. You know, you're, you don't have a pillow. I'm, I got, I. And the scripture says, you know, he just, it stuns him. And I think about that. We, we promise to follow the Lord, but the minute that the, the commitment comes due, we're nowhere to be found. I mean, think about that. You know, when we started the men's study Friday morning, you know, 64 guys came out. Now we're, we, and now we, I to, told them very first day, there's going to be an attrition. I'm in. I love this. Nowhere to be found the next day, the next week. It's, it's an attrition rate. And you just kind of fall by the wayside. I, I, my alarm didn't go off. I didn't. It, it's, it's like signing up for a gym membership. I don't want to talk about that. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the only other time in the scripture we see this term lay his head is at the cross where he laid his head and he gave up his spirit. It's the only place that the Son of Man laid his head. He never owned property, never had a house. He, he never held on to anything on this earth. And the only place he laid his head was upon the cross so that we would be set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, his atonement. And that's where he laid down his head. And as soon as he finishes to this man, another one comes up. And as this other disciple comes forward, he says, Lord, he says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. I think Jesus summoned him in the boat. Come on. And his comment was, Lord, let me go first bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Spiritual dead burying them physically dead. He's not saying, look, don't care for your family. Jesus commented that we're to care for our family. That wasn't the point. What the man was saying is, Lord, I can't get in the boat. I want to go and be with my father until he's old and gray. And then when he's buried and he's gone, then I'll come and serve you. Lord, when my 401k matures and I've got the 40-foot Winnebago and I can travel the country, I'll serve you as long as I have hookups. It's conditions. And, and fascinating to me that Jesus says, follow me. And the man's response, Lord, let me first. Lord, me first. Lord, I have an agenda of what is required before I follow you. Me, my thing, and then you, Lord. I, you're Lord, but I want to be in charge of the agenda. Lord. Lord, me, Lord, I. Apostle Paul said, I, the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, let me first, me first. And we come to God and we say, God, I've, I've, I, you know, I've worked it out. I've read a number of books on how to organize my life. And, and you know, I've got it laid out. It's, it's you first and then my spouse and then my, my, my kids and, and then my job. And the Lord says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. God doesn't do this structure. For God, there's one priority, him. And some days I wake up and, you know, you can come and say, you know, I've got my life all arranged and I've got God and then I've got my spouse and I've got my kids, my job, and then the hobbies temporarily down in this location here so much in this section. 
It's not that way when you serve the Lord. You wake up and, and, and you know, there are days Michelle doesn't see me. And she knows. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. And, and this is, we're not, and some days Michelle and I wake up and we go, it has nothing to do with either of us. Today, it's this child or it's this child. Other days, it's somebody in the fellowship or somebody dealing with city hall and the priorities. God orders them. He orders our steps. And you're going, well, wait a minute. I want my white shirts here and my blue shirts here and then the blazers and then the suits. And then we're going to go by gradation of grays on those. And then the, and God's like, no, it just, he messes it up. And he just says, I'm it. But Lord, me first. And that's not to say that you don't have structure in your life. Please understand. Don't write me off because you're all OCD. You're not even OCD. You're, you're CDO because it's an alphabetical order. <laughs> the idea is God is, he's it. He's the priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And we always get in trouble when we say me first. If it's about me, I've been hurt. I, me, my, I problem, you're holding on to the controls and you're coming into some storm and you need to turn it over because a lot of people are counting on you and you're bringing everybody down with the me first thing. It's all about me. And everybody's suffering why you won't let, let go of the controls. And this is the problem. And one man's too anxious to get on and doesn't and the other is too hesitant and doesn't. But the ones that Jesus summons, they get on board. And this is where we are. And we get on board and the Lord goes to sleep. And a few of us, we know how to run this thing and we'll take it from here. And the others are like, what are, what are we doing? Just sit down, shut up. And if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. We're going that way because we're, we're heading that way. And then the storm lands. And that, that's a storm. The idea of the word storm in here is this seismos in the Greek. It means a great tempest. It means earthquake proportions, massive. Just, it, just, it just slammed them. And, and anyone who's been through a decent-sized earthquake understands seismic activity. It, it, you're la, 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 and you're running for door jams, and you're running outside, and you're looking for the children. You, you, you've been through this. And the tornado, you know, siren goes off and, and everybody panicked. We went through this, this storm here and we had the flash flood warnings and your phone goes off. You're looking at it and you're like, oh, 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 oh. And I, you know, the storm was awful. I had to go out to the backyard and pick up a potted plant that had fallen over. It was tragic. <laughs> but here... We see this, and I, I, I like what Spurgeon says about this second disciple, and I, I want to cover this before we, we jump into the storm itself. The man wanted to follow Jesus, but just not yet. And when he said to him, let the dead bury the dead, I like what he writes here. He says, much of the concerns of politics and committee meetings and social reforms, innocent amusements and so forth, may be very fitly described as burying the dead. Much of this is very needful, it's proper, and commendable work, but still only such a form of business as unregenerate men can do as well as disciples of Jesus. He says, let them do it. But if we are called to preach the gospel, let us give ourselves wholly to our sacred calling. And I, I wanted to just touch on this. These two areas are not mutually exclusive. You know, we have the, the youth do this H4O where they build freshwater wells in areas that have no water. 
And that's a good thing. But non-Christians can do it as well as Christians. Politics, very important, but non-Christians can do it just as well as Christians. And what's happened, I don't know if you've ever studied secular humanism, but secular humanism came out of the church. It started with the, the Puritans, actually, and the Congregationalists. You had Harvard and Yale, and, and these Congregationalists, the, the interesting thing about secular humanism and, and looking at it, the, these were the folks that were so moved by social reform that they, you had abolition and you had, you had uh, suffrage, women's suffrage and child labor laws, all done by these folks that were passionate, Harry Beecher Stowe, a number of others. And yet some in the church would look at it and say, you know, that's, that's, you don't do that. We're about the gospel. The gospel, we got to stay to the truth. And they're over here going, well, but we need social reform. They need wells. We need good people in politics. We need, we need, and they, they know we need this. And so they would, they would separate themselves. And so this went that way and this went that way. And this idea of isolating ourselves based on truth and we, we hinder ourselves from engaging in the, in the storms of life, stepping into the culture of life, and then others step into the storms without the Lord because in secular humanism, as they pull away from the truth of God's word, they have no moral foundation, no tether, no anchor. And they're cast about a sea in moral relativism with a moving scale and it just becomes lunacy and craziness. And they talk about justice and they don't even know what to declare justice is because there's no absolutes. And over here, they've got the absolutes, but they're absolutely not engaging in the world. And they're staying right here on the shore with their head knowledge. I know that you're a good teacher. I know that everything you taught on the Sermon on the Mount makes sense, but I'm not getting in that boat. And they're all, we're in the boat. But they have no anchor. And both cause you to be shipwrecked. Both cause you to be irrelevant. They're not mutually exclusive. You come together in this respect. The anchor of God's word, as well as the heart to step into the storm of life and to engage the culture. Listen, stay on the shore. Stay on the shore. Look how lovely the room is. These chairs are nice. It's comfortable. We got donuts and coffee. Come, come and sit in the Sermon on the Mount and learn about the word of God. And rightly divide it and, and study it and, and do all of your verse by verse and your chapter by chapter and your book by book and do your observation, your interpretation, your application and break it down, not just, not just by every word, break it down by every letter and, and just do massive commentaries on all of it and just enjoy this and do as many Bible studies a week as you can. Amen? But do not engage in the dirtiness of the culture. Don't, because we'll soil ourselves. You got it up here, but a faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. Does your faith hold up in the culture? Will it survive the storm? I don't know. Do we have to leave the comfort of the boat or the shore? Listen, leave here and just go home. Get your pillow. Go, go stay with your family. Don't get too radical in all this stuff. This is hyperbole, by the way. <laughs> you got it here? It's got to marry. The gospel's under transformation of a culture. 
It's not, it, it's not to sit there and say, I'm a scribe, and I see, as a disciple, I followed you, and I, and I see where I'm going to fit in your, because most of these guys are fishermen, they're illiterate, and they're from Galilee. I'm a scribe. I know how to, to parse the text. I, I know these things. I'm very educated. And that's not to dismiss education. It's very profound. But get in the stupid boat. Get in the boat. I mean, your theory is great. Go out, apply it. Observation, interpretation, application. Not application with theory, application with doing. And I'll tell you, I haven't experienced a lot of storms until I've stepped outside the pulpit. Gail, in the midst of the storm in the political world, just hit me. And she understood it because here's a woman stepping into areas of culture that most Christians don't venture to go and dismiss you. And here, you have two folks that don't even get on the boat. And then others get on the boat. And in the midst of the boat, Jesus is sound asleep. And that's something I think all of us should process this morning. Because this tempest, this seismos, where you get the word earthquake, it, it, it was a severe storm, and it hit like that. And I think that's, um, that's one of the hardest things in ministry are those late-night calls. Somebody's world's been rocked, and they're desperate. You feel helpless. And you know how to navigate this. You've been through it before, Pastor. Yeah. I don't know that I did real well. And they're looking to you for something. And I'm looking at the storm saying, I don't know what to do for you. I, I, I can't handle these controls. The best thing I can do for you is direct you to the one who can handle it, and that's Jesus. But I want you to do it. I can't. I can't. I think that's the reason why we've, Michelle and I have survived ministry. We've realized that's not my wheelhouse. I can point you to the one who was willing to take the controls. But you hang on to that and everybody in your family's miserable. I sat with a brother the other day. He was talking about, you know, I'm losing my family. I'm losing it. And I just turned and I just said, look, you got to give up control and give it to the Lord. Those are all symptoms of the main problem. The problem is God's not running your life. I'm in the midst of a storm. You understand? I, I do. You are screwing this up. You're going to crash this plane and everybody in your family is going to die with you. Would you please surrender? That's hard. And when that storm hits and the word cancer, I mean... I learned a long time ago in ministry, you don't, you don't dismiss the size of a storm in someone's life. It may be catastrophic. I mean, have you ever heard the term minor surgery? It's only minor if it's not you being operated on, right? <laughs> it's still trepidation and fear. I can't dismiss how, how it's affecting you. One of your children's bad report card. You you have insights. I don't know what that, but it's grieving you. It's it's overwhelming you. The word cancer. You can go through 
all kinds of ideas and looking at these things. But that's the way storms come, and it's sudden, and it hits. In the midst of this, it just becomes overwhelming. I think of folks that get laid off, a teenager dabbling in drugs, a business deal among friends that goes bad. All of these things cause people to struggle. There's a couple of things that we're going to learn in the next nine minutes, and actually three things. I just wanted to, these were observations I put down. Storms will come. You're either going into one, you're in one, or you're coming out of one, but storms will come. And when they come, they're intense. And I can't measure the intensity, only you know that. What may not be intense for me may be intense for you, and what may not be intense for you may be intense for me. But it is a storm, and they will come, and they will be intense. And when Jesus is your captain, and this is so powerful in the text itself, calm will also come because Jesus has the controls, right? I mean, that illustration my friend gave me, bless me. It settled my heart in the text. And then finally, between the storm and the calm, we need to come to Christ. And what's interesting about that is there's a right way to come to Christ in a wrong way. As I was considering the text this morning and looking through it, I was thinking of Exodus 14 and 15. Exodus 14, Moses There's mountains on his right, mountains on his left, and the entirety of the Egyptian army behind him and the Red Sea in front of him, and all of the Israelites want to kill him. He's like, okay, thanks a lot, God. Let's stone him, let's kill him. He brought us out in the wilderness to die when we were back in Egypt. At least we had garlic and leeks. So garlic is like, well, it is. But anyways, and they want to kill him. And then, you know, Moses puts his staff in, the Red Sea parts, they cross through, the Egyptian army comes in, they floods back, kills them all. They get to the other side, and then Exodus 15 is this praise song. God is so good, hallelujah. God is so, hallelujah. And they're singing this praise song for the entirety of chapter 15. Problem is, they were praising God on the wrong side of the Red Sea. They weren't even doing it when they were walking through. They waited until they got to the other side. They'd given up all theory. They'd given up everything because the storm was so heavy they didn't even see the destination or the point. They'd forgotten everything God had promised. They'd forgotten everything that God had done in the past. They had lost complete perspective. Your storm is so severe that you've lost sight of your destination. You're just trying to stay afloat, right? And that's the picture here. They're just trying to stay afloat. Well, one of the very important things never to forget in the midst of a storm is Jesus is in the boat. Give him the controls. He was with the disciples. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He promised that. Either you believe it or you don't. And you know what he's doing in the boat, which was so fascinating to me, is he was sound asleep. He's at rest and he wants you to be. Your anxiety and your fear is poisoning everyone around you. That thermostat, you have chilled the house. And God just says, calm down, rest in me. The Bible says the Lord gives rest to those he loves. Listen to me, ready? He loves you. Now just calm down and rest. You don't understand the intensity of it? I do. 
it's intense because you're holding on with your kung fu grip to controls you can't manage in a storm you can't deal with. Would you just stop it? Call on me, I'll show you great and mighty things you know not of. And some of you are struggling with it because you think, well, this is a storm of my creation because of all I've screwed up. And you go through the litany of all your failures. And I know that because nobody's better at that than me. And almost every storm in life I've ever engaged in, I have created. And I'm thinking, I deserve this. And I, I might as well just take me now. And the Lord says, I, listen, I know you've created the storm. I'm going to teach you something in the midst of it. And we're going to get through the other side. And it's a refiner's fire and it's a process. And, and, and we're going to remove the slag and you're going to be even better on the other side. Yeah, great. Thanks. Amen. It's like, no, I, I, I don't, I don't want to go through this. Couldn't we just study it in theory? And yet there are storms of correction. Jonah, God said, go that way. He went this way. Storm, whale, vomit, but partially digested man, repent. That's the story of Jonah. And then there's storms of instruction, which is for the disciples. Jesus brought them into the middle of the storm. He says, we're going to the other side. This was a storm of instruction. I'm going to teach you about faith. And they marveled at him. When storms come, calm down. I like uh, what Luke tells the disciples. Uh, the disciples woke Jesus up in a panic. They said, Lord, don't you care that we're going to perish? They, they didn't doubt his ability to calm the storm. They doubted if he loved them. God loves you. He wants good for you. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. A hope and a future. He's for you, not against you. And this is something you have to remember in the midst of it. But here's the other part. In the midst of the storm, and this is what was so fascinating about Matthew 8, in the midst of the storm, I think the enemy of our soul, the devil, he wants us to believe in the midst of the storm that God God doesn't care. He doesn't care. And that he's abandoned you. In the movie coming out that some of you may or may not go see, and I think you should, I love the scene where Mac tells Papa in the shack where he says, the people that you purport to love the most, you abandon them when they need you the most. You abandon my daughter. You abandon me when I was a boy, and you abandon your son on the cross. At which point Papa says, I was there. First uh, Corinthians 5 says that he was that the father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and and the idea is don't think you know it's not like that he when he said Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani that 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 Jesus and the father were having a schizophrenic moment that the godhead had somehow been separated lo i'm with you always even to the end of the age the devil wants you to think that God's forsaken you. He hasn't. He never will. He said, Lord, I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to do what's right. What's going on? It doesn't make any sense. I can't see the destination through the midst of the storm. And it was easy to get in the boat when the sun was shining. But in the midst of all of this, when the storm comes, the perspective changes. And you get overwhelmed. But I think this idea, and I, and I like... I like the comment one author makes. He says, Satan knows that academic truth is not a threat to Satan or his kingdom. It's truth that is active, truth that is lived out, that is threatening to Satan. 
This is scary to Satan because these are folks that are going to realize God's faithful in the midst of the most seismic storm. You understand that? Nothing will stop you. Real faith doesn't just board the boat, but it acts a certain way once inside the boat. I like what this author says. He says, as long as Jesus is in the boat, as long as I am with you, there's no need to fear. If you want to learn faith, it is learned only from deep inside the hull of the boat in the midst of the storm. And George Mueller wrote this, and I love what George Mueller, this is a man that, that operated volumes of miraculous accomplishment that God did in feeding thousands of orphans in England, in Bristol, England. George Mueller wrote, the only way to end up with strong faith is to endure great trials. Endure great trials. It's only in that sea, in the midst of the storms and the shifting waves that we learn faith, Mueller wrote. You see, faith is more than just a set of beliefs. Faith, faith is belief with muscle. You see, you don't get muscle unless you exercise. I, it may be in your head, but go do something. Get in the boat. And I'll tell you what, when, when you do this, you add courage to what you know. God's word is tested, it's proven true. And you follow Jesus into any storm. And the, the, the greater the storm, the stronger the faith. But a faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. And you look at this passage of scripture and Jesus stands up. First he turns to him, he says, why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. First he marveled at the faith of the centurion. He turns to these guys, he says, you have no faith. And he marvels at them. And then at this point he arose, stands up, after he rebuked them, he then rebukes the winds and the sea. And, 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 and the structure of the Greek means that it, it, it crushed the waves into submission. His voice leaves his mouth and climate conditions in the Mediterranean and everything else transforms and whoosh, And the scripture says they were afraid. They, they were no longer concerned about the storm. They realized, who is this man? And so, when Peter is, later as tradition tells us, crucified upside down, and Paul is beheaded, they attempt to boil John alive. They don't renounce their faith. They've already been through those storms. And the greatest storm is going to be death. And they've come to realize that I died a long time ago. Apostle Paul would say, I don't count my life dear to myself. I figured out the secret I'm already dead. And Christ is alive. He's in control. Not me first. You know, I think for all of us, if we look at this and we realize God's in complete control, surrender. 
Quit making life miserable for all the passengers and give the controls over to the one who knows how to land the plane. And there's no storm that will overcome you if your eyes are on him. And it says in Isaiah, he will keep thee in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast on thee. This isn't an exercise in futility in the midst of your mind where you're gonna walk out that door and stay on the shore. We're gonna spend time with the worship team and the prayer team so that when you walk out that door, you're getting on the boat. And there isn't a storm that you need to be afraid of because Jesus is resting, so do you, so do I. The more I step into the culture, the less afraid I become because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. Step into every storm knowing that the Lord is with you. Amen. Let's invite the worship team and the prayer team up. Join with me as I pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that has brought us comfort. That in the midst of the storm, you were resting, you were asleep. And Lord, when we panic in the midst of the storm, we forget who's in control. And though we think we've done this a thousand times and we can operate on our own ability, you bring us to a place where the storm outweighs our ability to overcome it. And it's there that we're reduced to nothing that you might pour in everything. And we come to realize that it's not me first. It's not my agenda I have been crucified with Christ. It's yours. Lord, take the controls and land this plane and get everybody that's under my care safely to the other side. So Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid of the storms for you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That we would step into the culture knowing that in the midst of the storm, you were with us always, even to the end of the age. Thank you, God. Let this time of prayer and worship establish your heart in us and our faith in you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.